Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot. This is one of our special bonus episodes where we get to get somebody else on the show. And so it's going to be a little longer. It's going to be a little more in depth, and it's going to be at least as much fun as listening to me talk for 20 minutes. Our guest today is Christina Halu, PTDPTCFMTCSCCSE, pronouns they, them who is a pleasure and play expert, private coach, thought leader, speaker, and doctor of physical therapy. Dr. Christina is an exceptional coach, thought leader, and curator of life-changing coaching experience, experience retreats to help you tap into your most authentic, optimal pleasure and play-filled life and expand your joy in both your meaningful relationships and professional work. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. What a wonderful intro. I really appreciate it. You have such a soothing voice, Leela. Thank you. So why don't we start with you just telling us a little more about yourself. That was a very impressive and probably for most people impenetrable string of letters at the end of your name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's 15, but no one's counting, right? <laughs> right. So, so what is the heart of your work? Oh, I love this question. So the heart of my work is my love for people and seeing and affirming them for who they are and reflecting their inner wisdom back to them. So that translates to two different branches of what I do. So my first love was physical therapy. And, you know, I'm trained as a doctor of physical therapy. I did orthopedics for a while, pivoted into pelvic floor. And after treating pelvic floor for a while, I realized there's so much more than just the physical body. I mean, I always knew that, right? But I, I started diving deeper into sexual health and wellness so that I actually had tools to help my clients aside from just the physical skeleton, muscles, joints, nerves, etc. And then that kind of took a pivot to where I am in the second kind of arm of my business where, you know, I coach folks on tapping into you know, wonder and play so that they can experience more pleasure and joy in their lives in alignment with who they are authentically and unapologetically. And knowing who you are unapologetically translates into improvements in your more meaningful relationships and how you run your business and whatnot. So that's kind of the heart of my business really is people. I love people. I love humanity. And I am committed to doing things different. So I, I see the world <laughs> is so beautiful and there's so much that I have to give in terms of love and joy to others and seeing people for who they are and reflecting that back to them that I just always go back to humanity and my community and, you know, my skills lie in being able to be a thought leader and private coach as well as physical therapist. So what is so different about your way of doing it? Uh, I, love this, I have to say, I love this question <laughs> for people because some of my best clients and some of the people that I work most closely with as colleagues are people who are committed to doing something radically differently. And of course, my work is also about doing business radically differently. So, so I always love to hear, like, how are you doing things differently? Because obviously the system we have is not working. So we're all out here like poking it with a stick, trying to get it to change. So what is your, what is your variation? Yeah, so I am a human who is non-binary and queer, and I'm trying to run a small business that's not toxic and capitalist in nature. Although we do know that like businesses do need to make money, but you know, I value the people that I hire and I work with. I value paying people a living wage and providing really high quality care and coaching to my clients. Another thing that I feel very strongly about is, you know, being publicly non-binary and queer. And in my messaging and my branding and on my website, I am non-binary and queer and I elevate LGBTQIA2S plus folks. 
you know, it's part of my community. I see anyone of any gender and sexuality, you know, whoever you are, as long as you are an open human <laughs> to LGBTQA um, plus uh, identities, then I absolutely love to work with you. And I think it's important to out loud claim that those are the folks that I support and I am not going to shy away from it or hide that that's who I am. And those are the people that I care most about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how does, how does, how does your awareness of the world from a non-binary perspective impact or change the way that you do your work? I think one of the biggest things, and I don't know if that's, you know, me holding my own non-binary identities or the cancer double Libra in me, but <laughs> I don't really see, I don't, I, I, a lot of the benefit I see is from not seeing the world in black and white, but the both mm-hmm. and that there's always a middle path. There's always a gray area. You know, it's not just this or that. It's not just male or female. It's not just, you know, gay or straight. Like there's so much in between and there's so much variance between the everyone. And so I feel like from my own personal perspective and growth, uh, and just, you know, that Libra energy in me, <laughs> I can hold the both and, and help reflect that back to people. And so I think part of, part of my, I guess, skill is being able to not see everything as black and white and to see where we can do things differently. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, sure. And what delights you about that? The possibilities. I think, at least for me, and I know a lot of the people that I worked with, we've only seen one path, you know, that heteronormative checklist of go through school, get the job, find the partner, get married, have the house, have the kids, check, check, check. Get on the relationship escalator. Yep. Yep. Without actually doing a lot of the inner work to see if that's even what you want. If that's what you want, that's great. But I think it's magical to be able to look inward and decide for yourself. And so, and I get so much delight when I have feedback from my clients where people just feel so happy in their own bodies and their lives. And, and they feel like they have that agency to advocate for themselves and their needs and their wants. And I can't, is there anything more beautiful than someone being like, this is who I am. And I'm starting to love myself for that. <laughs> like, That's so gorgeous. Yeah. So so do you find that a lot of your clients don't have a sense of their own power? Yes. And that, I mean, that definitely started where I started seeing it when I was solely doing clinical work in physical therapy, especially pelvic health, where folks have no sense of power in terms of their agency in the room with a medical provider, knowing that they can you know, ask for the provider to go slower or to do an exam this way, or I want to talk to you with my clothes on before I have to undress for a pelvic exam, you know, or even asking for what they want from their partners or asking themselves what they want. (laughs) So I started seeing that in the pelvic health world. And then when I was moving over into the coaching a little bit, it really is people don't necessarily see how much power they have in terms of agency and self-advocacy and that affects their relationships and it affects their sense of self and their power and sense of power. So I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that I, I try to do is empower all of my, my clients, right. To, to say like, almost sometimes I feel like I'm giving them permission but I'm not really giving them permission. They don't need my permission. <laughs> but sometimes people need reminders that they have permission from themselves to be whoever they are and explore whoever they are and live however they want to live. So tell me what you've learned about desire in your work. <laughs> oh, desire. <laughs> um, well, one of the you know most common misconceptions is that people think that they should 
the experience desire just naturally instead of or spontaneously or when they're with their partners or it should just kind of like come up or come to them, right? Where desire, especially the older we get, is something that we need to actively and intentionally tap into or kind of if we are going specifically clinical and sexual health world, it is something that, you know, when we're younger, teens, lots of hormones, it's more spontaneous. And the older we get, it's more receptive, right? So we need to set up our life in order to be open to receiving a lot of the desire that we want. And does that translate to non-sexual contexts as well? Oh, absolutely. Like, is, it, is it the same? We, we get older and we get more receptive and less initiative? I think so. You know, I think it's a lot of that we get stuck into our own patterns and habits or we have like what I consider like an unexplored sense of identity or like wants in the world. And so we just kind of move through life and just do step after step after step without really thinking, like, is this even what I want? And so being, I think it's important, and I teach my clients how to be intentional about their desires and exploring who they are and what they want and validating that whatever it is, as long as it's hurting no one, is is fair game. Like, you, you know, it's judgment-free. You have to just figure out what you want. How do people learn to be judgment-free at, say, age 40? Um, Well, (laughs) therapy, (laughs) coaching, (laughs) Um, unpacking your own childhood stuff, (laughs) you know, figuring out where those learned behaviors come from of why you're so judgmental, especially why you're so judgmental of yourself. Because a lot of times we project that judgment onto others. And to, oh, that's, that's a juicy right? one. <laughs> so I, the, one of the first steps I teach people is to step back and say, like, am I projecting? And a lot of the times we are projecting our own internalized judgment onto others. And so then looking inwards and figuring out, like, why, where did that judgment come from? Where is the, where's that narrative, those stories? Why have you been telling yourself this? your whole life and exploring through that realm. So I want to tell a a short story here because my listeners will be somewhat familiar with intensive and expansive frameworks. But what a lot of folks don't know is that the absolute worst gatekeepers for intensiveness are in fact the squished intensives. They're the intensives that have learned that intensiveness is wrong and they are then the ones who are out there making sure that nobody's being intensive in the world ever. And wagging, I'm, y'all can't see, but I'm wagging my finger at the camera because it's that <laughs> kind of energy. And this feeling that, that if I am holding this internalized judgment, then I have some kind of moral authority to project it and share my internalized judgment with the world and everybody else who did not ask whether I wanted to approve of their behavior. And, and releasing that, the, the process that my clients go through when they realize, some of my clients come and they're like, I'm just intensive. This is just the way I am. But a lot of my clients come with this kind of judgment built in and the, the, the freedom that comes from putting that down and just being like, no, I'm going to be intensive. And then suddenly they're nicer to everybody. <laughs> yeah. And the people around them are like, you know, you're a lot, but you're a lot nicer than you used to be, even though you're a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, you can even like feel kind of like that energy of a person who is intense and intentional about not being judgmental for themselves or projecting it to others or doing the work. Because I don't think it's something that you can just do the work and then it's, then you're not judgmental, right? I think... It's a lifelong process, and but the first step is awareness, and then you can start catching yourself and then working through those things. But it's not like a oh, I'm going to work through this and then I'm never going to be judgmental, right? Like those those pathways in our brains have been so ingrained since we were little, and it takes a lot of one work work to kind of unpack and rewire those things. And so it's not going to happen overnight, and it's also not going to be a hundred percent judgment free for your whole life. And it's it's. 
no, no, ongoing it's, work. It's one of those things where you're peeling an onion for sure. So what's your favorite starting point for that releasing of judgment? <sighs> okay. There's a couple things. <laughs> I think journaling is always a really good one. And therapy, I always, you know, therapy is a really good starting point. For me, I like to use wonder and play. And so when I think of wonder and something that's just so majestic and out of body and so big and beautiful. So um, one activity I have is like if my clients have access to whatever they feel like is epic scenery, Right. Because if you can step out of your body and put yourself in perspective of Mm. the planet that we live on, the universe that we're in, right, like this whole big, expansive universe. And and in that, right, there's like the sky, the stars, all the galaxies and then this planet and we're on this planet and there's like this magical like nature. And if you're on top of a mountain, it's so easy to kind of, or it's not so easy, but it's easier. And I find that my folks really like this activity to like ground yourself into the perspective that of all of the things that you could have been in this universe, you got to be you. Mm. And then another activity is literally play. And so when I talk about play, it's what feels playful to you, right? And if people are like, I don't, I don't know, they're so far gone from there or so, you know, so far away from like the playfulness that they used to have in their life. It's like, what did you like doing as a kid? Did you like jump roping? Do you like figure skating? Did you like coloring? Like, what can you tap into to even just kind of revisit so that like those pathways in your brain are like, oh yeah. We do like to do these things. <laughs> like I was accused as a child of not wanting to have fun. I thought that fun was like sitting and having long philosophical conversations with my friends. And that's when I was like eight. So how would someone like me who like has not got a historical neuronal pathway set well, in fun, you- like <laughs> with somebody who's like who's super serious as a child? Yeah. So one, I would like, but you had described it as something you thought was fun, right? I mean, that was what I assumed fun was because it was like interesting. Yeah. So that could be something that you tap into our our (laughs) conversations like the one we're having, right? Where like this feels fun and playful for you. The other thing is just try something. Like, is there anything you've ever wanted to try? Have you ever seen someone play a sport that you're like, wow, I really want to do that? Have you ever seen someone dress up in a costume and you're like, yes, I want a purple wig and a <laughs> cobalt blue suit. And I want to just go to the park. I don't know. I don't know. It really the costume is so terrifying. individualized. <laughs> the costume is okay. Terrifying. But that's not but, your thing, Leela. <laughs> but, but, um, but I have always wanted to learn to surf and I started to learn when I lived in Maine and then I moved to the West coast. And ironically, the West coast is a much harder place to try to learn to mm-hmm. surf. But, but yeah, so I can feel that kind of like curious openness coming Mm -hmm. up when I think about things that I'm like, oh, I want to try that. Or like, I'm an absolute, see, this is the problem is I'm like, oh, I think learning to be fluent in another language would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But is there anything that would be fun for you that is like an embodied activity so that's something you are doing movement wise not just talking or thinking (laughs) I'm making a thinky face um (laughs) (laughs) I you know the things I I find that the things that I do for pleasure Mm -hmm. that are that are like that are embodied tend to be crafts. There you go. Tend to be like I'm making a table or I'm making a pot or I'm weaving something or I'm knitting something mm-hmm. or I'm spinning yarn or I'm I have a long list. Anyway, um <laughs> that that creativity is kind of where I go for that thing. But I've always been a little mystified by fun. Mm-hmm. Like I literally two weeks ago I said to someone what what is fun? in fact I think I made a post on Facebook and I was like fun let's talk about fun because it was this kind of 
foreign. I realized from somebody else's question somewhere else that I, I didn't really know how to grasp fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, so if we go to like the actual dictionary definition of fun, it is literally just something that brings you enjoyment or pleasure. So if crafts does it for you, Leela, then cra- then you don't like that's the thing about kind of getting out of your head and, and into your body or getting out of that self-judgment. There is nothing wrong with the way that you like to have fun. I guess the question that I've had, and I, I am assuming that some of your clients may encounter this in themselves as well, is like, it, does that qualify as fun? Like, because pleasure and fun, we have, English is such a rich language. In a lot of languages, those are probably the same word. But in English, we have different words and it means different things and they carry different connotations. Mm-hmm. And so I could tell you all day things that bring me pleasure. Okay, well. But I'm never sure if that's like a qualifying fun. <laughs> To who is who? Well, that's the question, right? It's your scale. It's your life. And so those are the things you find fun, amusing, pleasurable, enjoyment. That is how you define fun for yourself, right? Like I can't tell you that. Okay. So one thing I think is really fun is swinging on swings. Oh yeah. That's fun. Right? Other people are like, I get vertigo and that is not a fun (laughs) activity for me. No, having but again, is not usually fun. <laughs> you know, so, one of the things that I think is fun is having a, like one-on-one conversations or really close connections with people. I think hiking is fun. It's also hard and not fun sometimes, right? It's But the work is to figure out what you find fun. And if you don't know if it qualifies, then I would say try to define what fun means to you and are you living in alignment with how you define fun not necessarily how other people define fun yeah because what i don't find fun is is living in an oppressive toxic capitalist society that awesome. tells me i have to do all these things <laughs> that i don't want to do just so that i can have a paycheck so that i can then maybe go on a vacation to have fun right i want Absolutely. to find fun in my daily life yeah. Uh, no. Oh, no. I'm not waiting until I can, what, retire? Like, is retirement even a thing <laughs> for our generation? I don't think it is. I don't so, think it is. So if, let's imagine a world in which somehow magically the kind of work you do, I'm not saying that you personally have to have done it, but the kind of work okay. you do has spread throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And everybody or almost everybody has a deep sense of, what they want and how to enact it. And they're in touch with this, this fun oriented, like lens on the world. How would the world be different? I think there would be much less hate, oppression and terribleness. Just, I don't know if that's a word. I made it up because I, I truly believe that a lot of, people in power who are oppressing others and making miserable systems for the 99% of us to live in, I don't think they're having fun. I don't don't think they're living a joyful or playful life. I think they are probably sitting with a lot of self-judgment and misery and they are alone with their wealth. And I feel like if there were more people who were intentional about having fun or pleasure or play and were like, we aren't buying into these systems of oppression anymore, right? Like if think of if, if most people were like, I'm not doing this demeaning work or getting paid cents on a dollar or I don't think people would have time to be as hateful and miserable as they are. (laughs) I mean, but this is also a dream world. (laughs) It is. It is. You know, it's funny. I was, I was watching this TikToker yesterday who's been teaching himself to read on TikTok. And it's an incredible journey for an adult to learn to read and suddenly gain access to everything that's written. And have you ever seen Fifth Element, the movie? No. Okay. 
So, so the there's a character named Lilu who uh, is actually an alien, <laughs> comes to Earth for reasons, and she needs to understand what's going on on Earth. So they and she's incredibly like her brain is just amazing. So she sits down in front of a computer and they just like feed her all of this essentially Wikipedia entries about everything. And she just absorbs it all at like hyperspeed. And as she learns the history of humanity, she, she's like, Oh, this is great. This is interesting. And then there's this moment where she just starts, she just collapses in racking sobs. And she's like, why, why, why am I even trying to save humanity? Look at what you've done to yourselves. And so this Uh, relatable, right. (laughs) Right, like that movie has aged, as, as movies go, that movie has aged ridiculously well, and and the this idea that like, what if what if we what if we just took care of each other, right? Like, what would it be like for us to start from this sense of our own needs being met and our own pleasure being addressed, our own desire, our own playfulness. And then like, what is that, how does that change how we interact with the world? You know, all those studies about how people become less socially and politically conservative when their needs are met, when they're less worried about their needs being met. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, I think that would be a beautiful world. And, and I, I do think about that often because, you know, I was talking about like, sometimes when I, I'll like go climb a mountain or have like go to a very scenic area to kind of put myself in perspective I think of that sometimes in reverse where I'm like, humanity could have created anything and this is what we made. <laughs> and I, and, and I, I get sad about it, but then I'm also like, okay, but if we made this, we can unmake it and we can make something bigger and better and more beautiful. And, and I do agree with what you were saying in terms of like having your own needs met, right? If we think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like you need to be able to have food, water, shelter, clothing, access to healthcare and, and know yourself and you have the right to be your own individual human who has access to pleasure and joyful activities or just joy in general. And while I don't think you can move through life with just joy, I do think there would be so much less hate in the world if people really focused inward on their own personal journeys, meeting their needs and not fighting others out of a false sense of scarcity. Yeah, the false sense of scarcity is real. I, I, I'm always, so I'm thinking about the ways that like indigenous people in what is now the U.S. and Canada created like a, an, an active like food forest, nourished, like, like basically lived in relationship with the land in such mm-hmm. a way that it was co-created and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was so beautiful that the Europeans couldn't imagine the people did it. <laughs> and so they just decided that it had been like that magically and then destroyed it. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and thinking about the way that Maslow's hierarchy is this kind of weird inversion of the Blackfeet theory. I don't know if you know about that. Not familiar. No. Yeah. Maslow got his ideas from the Blackfeet, but then he like turned it upside down. <laughs> And and so thinking about the ways in which individual pleasure are, is important, but also like collective and interdependent engagement is vital to this kind of to this kind of world that we're imagining. Like we can't yes. just be after our own individual pleasure. We also have to be after. Like, how are, how are the people around me doing? What am I going to do to help to take care of them? How, how are we going to be engaged with each other? How can I care for, and not just the people, but the, all the beings around me? Yeah. How, how are we in relationship? How are we in interdependence? I've been, I just finished reading Braiding Sweetgrass like last week, and I'm now deep into Rest is Resistance. And like, it's, I, I thought about all these things before, but the way those books are changing my approach to this stuff is really, profound. Yeah. Like, I, I, okay, but how am I in relationship with 
everything. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, so the work that I do, it's like we start with ourselves, but when we're more joyful with ourselves is when we can then start working with community and relationships and, and kind of growing in that way. Uh, love both of those books too. I just started braiding sweetgrass and I've read um, Trisha Hersey's Rest is Resistance as well. And I do, I do think it's possible to have, oh, I can't think of the word right now, but like a complementary relationship with our surroundings and our community versus exploiting humans yeah. and the earth. And I think growth and beauty for humanity and, and the earth that we live on comes from thinking of everything as a whole and not just living in isolation or independence. Yeah. And then, and then like, how are things different if we don't have to figure our own stuff out and then go be in community? What if, what if the community holds and nourishes us into that other way of being? Like, I feel like the more work that you do like this, the more work I do, like what I do, like the more of us who are out here doing this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. the more people there are available who are thinking in this other way to create an actual container out of that other way. Yes. So I, I mean, I don't think you can just do all of the work. And I think for folks that have a hard time tapping into their own inner work, starting with community can be really a helpful place because you don't feel isolated and alone. And I also think the more of us that are out there that are visible and loud about the fact that we are doing stuff different helps to amplify and empower others to do the same thing in their own life and in their own local communities. Absolutely. So what does visibility look like for you? Oh, gosh, this word is such a charged word. And when you're <laughs> trying to um, run a small business. <laughs> so, okay, so how does it look like to me? I think it is starting with my personal relationships, starting with my family, my friends, my local community, just sharing about what I do and how I believe like things. And do they be understand? Better. Like, do they really understand? Oh, sometimes they don't. And so I then will turn to finding more online spaces because sometimes not everyone in my local community, you know, understands or gets it, reaching out, networking, giving people the, the chance to kind of share about their story by, you know, being open to networking and having one-off conversations with others. Um, I feel like today people always talk about in like visibility and exposure with social media. And I have, you know, feelings about social media <laughs> where I, it, it can be great at like connecting people. And then it can also be really harmful in terms of like the doom scrolling misinformation side of things. And it's kind of, at least for me is it's a balance of, I know it's not the best for my own personal mental health, but I want people to know my message. And so I will put stuff out on social media, but not so much that I feel like I'm contributing to other people doom scrolling because that I feel like could be harmful. But, I mean, sharing, but what if you put sharing. out the good stuff? Like you put out, how could the world be different? You put out how to access your own pleasure. You put out how to access your own, your own play. Like then you're not contributing to the doom scrolling. You're interrupting the doom. Um, I mean, I'm hoping I'm interrupting the doom is the thing, right? But like whenever people talk about this like algorithm that nobody actually knows what it is and is ever changing, I'm like, do, where do I even fall or fit in or is somebody finding me? I don't know, but I'm so committed to helping people tap into their own pleasure and play in life that even if I feel like I am contributing maybe to doom scrolling Maybe I'm not, I don't know. I want people to know that there's help out there for them and they don't have to live in isolation when they're trying to do and live differently. For me, even just <laughs> knowing that there are other people who think remotely like I do is such a healing balm. Like the internet yeah, has been, it is. for all the challenges that the internet has, I've been on the internet since 
the beginning of college. And it has saved my life. It has Mm -hmm. given me community when there was no way I was going to find community locally. It has given me ideas. But most of all, it has given me the sense that I'm not the only person who's thinking and working in the directions that I'm thinking. No, that part I think is beautiful is to not know that you're alone and to be able to like find people to reach out to, you know, like we met on a, some random <laughs> training. I don't even remember. And I was just like messaged you privately and was like, I feel like your name's come up and I think your stuff's really interesting. We should be friends and chat. <laughs> and now we are. And I wouldn't have that. Right. And that wouldn't have happened without social media either. So, so, I mean, it is, I have a love hate relationship with it. You know, there are, there are really good things about it. And then there are some things that I, you know, I don't know. But there's also other ways to get out visibility, right? Like community talks, newsletters, emails. Yeah. Yeah. And we keep circling back to that conversation. A random person at a coffee shop. Yeah. Right. Like we keep circling back to that conversation about like, okay, the algorithm aforementioned is, (laughs) is absolutely disastrous for authentic human connection. So yes. if we're not going to algorithm, it is and it isn't, right? Like the TikTok algorithm is a little frighteningly good. Mm-hmm. And also that's part, partially because of the way TikTok is built. They get a lot of data very rapidly about what you want to engage with. And then they act mm-hmm. on that immediately and keep yeah. you engaged that way. But, but in large measure, the algorithm is not helping us stay connected with the people that we want to stay connected with or the people we're interested in or the, taking the conversations deeper so then we do have to go offline. We do like mm-hmm. a couple of days ago, I met up with somebody, Aurora, remember Holtzman, who has a whole thing about twice exceptional kids and being an adult who's like emerging from that, from that thing. And we sat in my backyard and talked for two hours because I have now moved to the city where she lives. And, mm-hmm. and I've had so many of those encounters in my lifetime where it's like, I've known you online for whatever number of years. And Mm -hmm. now we have the opportunity to meet up in person and they're just as awesome as they seemed (laughs) online. You know, there was an era way back at the beginning where people were like, nobody's ever who they say they are online, but that's Mm -hmm. not true anymore. There are some people that really are. I like to think that I'm basically the same person online and offline. I mean, I do too, except sometimes I'm like, you know, as a pleasure to play expert, am I posting too much happiness? Because that's not real life. (laughs) There are days where I am sad. (laughs) But I think it's also possible to be like, I want my content to do this in the world in the way that one would if one were publishing a newspaper, right? To be like, we are the newspaper, we're the New York Daily News, we're the New York Times. Those are two different papers Mm -hmm. and they do two Mm -hmm. different things. And so- you know, do I want to be the Daily News with like all of the clickbait headlines? Or do I mm-hmm. want to be the New York Times ostensibly fairly reputable, although probably being tugged around by some behind the scenes strings? Or do I want to be like the City Reader, which used to be a tabloid format? You know, what do I want to be? How do I want to be in the world? And it's okay to say like, yes, I'm sad today, but I'm not going to talk about that because that's not that's not the content that I think that I want to publish mm-hmm. or to say, I'm only going to talk about being sad after I've dealt with it. Yeah. <laughs> which usually is a very, after like, I've dealt with it. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is a very like ministry approach to things to be like, you mm-hmm. can talk about your hard stuff, but you have to have processed it yourself. You shouldn't bleed all over the page. And then there are people who are like, my thing is to bleed all over the page. And I think that's fine. And so we have all these different, I imagine everybody's social media, like aggregated social media feed is like (laughs) their own personal newspaper. (laughs) I like that. I like the reframe (laughs) around that (laughs) because I mean, I'm so intentional about like who I follow or not even necessarily who I follow, but like I will, there are some people I follow for various reasons, but then I will mute all of their posts and stories (laughs) because I don't Mm -hmm. actually want to see them. And so my feed really is, Truly people that I want to see and hear from. No, I do like that reframe. I think that's really nice. (laughs) (laughs) So like, it's perfectly legitimate to be like, I want you to know that I have bad days. And also I'm not focusing on that because I'm aware of how much doom doom scrolling goes on and I'm not interested in being part of the doom. I I, I want to interrupt your doom. 
That's and good. My, so That's my good. job on the internet is to interrupt your doom with a little piece of hope or a little piece of pleasure, a little piece of joy, a cute mm-hmm. picture of my dinner, like whatever it is. <laughs> and and my my personal newspaper is a little bit of a mix. It's like mm-hmm. sometimes I talk about the hard stuff in depth, but usually in a way usually in a way that's meant to elicit a conversation that will nourish the people who are reading it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I just ask interesting questions and because I'm fairly careful about who is in my space, I get these beautiful, rich, deep conversations. Yeah. I think where I've struggled is because my background's in pelvic and sexual health. And I do, like part of my brand is talking about like sexual mm-hmm. wellness and the impacts of pleasure, play, wonder has on your sexual wellness. Mm-hmm. The algorithm does not like the word sex, sexual, Doesn't pleasure, even like pleasure, orgasm, intimacy. Sometimes I can get away with, but I also kind of, you know, like as an expert and a professional, I, I hate having to uh, misspell words on purpose so that mm-hmm. I can play the game with the algorithm. And I think, that's also kind of where I have some of my own hangups is where I'm just like, I don't want to have to censor myself so that I can make it past the algorithm to get to the people I want to talk to. Right. And I don't want to reinforce the kind of culturally built in shaming. There's enough of that. Right. Like I, is there this? is no shame in what I do and there is no right. shame in any of these topics. And yet it's, you know, I've done so many behind the scenes things to say, like, only show my content to people who are 18 plus so that right. I don't necessarily have to censor myself or misspell words or kind of play the game. But I, I still somehow like feel that pressure. Yeah. It and I don't like icky. it. It feels, it icky. feels icky because I'm like, no, there is literally nothing shameful about wanting to talk about why you're not having the sex you're having or why you're so stressed at work, your, your relationships are suffering or why you're so stressed at home or being a stay at home parent that you never want to have sex with your partner, even though you like really, you want to, but like your body doesn't really want to because your body's so overwhelmed with stress and there's nothing shameful about any of those topics. And even in terms of the pelvic health, like that's all medical knowledge. People right. should feel empowered to know about their body parts. Absolutely. The algorithm doesn't 100%. like it. <laughs> well, you're right. And those are, I, I think of, I have a lot of friends who are sexuality educators and I find that the amount of hoop jumping that everyone has to do, and I used to do more active sexuality education. Now it's just like one of those things that I have in the back of my head. And when it comes up, it comes up. But, but I feel like, Content like that in today's internet is really relegated to non-social media spaces. It can happen under Discord mm-hmm. because Discord is like a different kind of space. It's it's not really social media. It's conversation. And it can happen on a blog, which is you have mm-hmm. a lot more control over that. And as long as you're just talking about it and really doing educational content, very few web hosts will complain about that content being there. If you try to do anything that involves payment, payment processors will have a holy fit. Oh, they do. (laughs) But, but, but just getting the data out there, just getting the information out there, having the conversations is a lot easier in spaces that we control more. That we control. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is terrible, but that's the world we're living in right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, the Squarespace hosts my website, which is great and fine. I've had no issues with them. But one of my payment processors uh, kind of pulled their one of my accounts because they, and this was when I was literally only advertising pelvic floor physical therapy, so medical care. Which and is they medical were like, care. it's medical care. And they flagged it saying it was one of their prohibited business types, which was in the same category as like a gentleman's club or pornography. And I was just like, that is not anything that I do, you know? And, and at the time it was one of the first kind of like things that kind of, you know, was allowed, Hey, we don't like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just, you know, was pretty upset about it for a while. And now it's just like, well, whatever, you don't deserve my, my credit card fees. Like, <laughs> no, no, you, you don't. don't. 
<laughs> and and the the challenges are like this podcast is marked as explicit because sometimes I talk about sex on it and sometimes I swear on it and Apple Podcasts, which is the grand high poobah of podcasts, doesn't like those words being in, you know, publicly available material. But it means that my podcast doesn't show up in searches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so frustrating, too, because I feel like the people who are being censored are the people that are providing safer spaces for folks to do the work to become I mean, better is- people. This is the downhill effect of FOSTA-SESTA. FOSTA-SESTA was legislation that happened uh, a few years ago now that really cracked down on internet spaces that had sexual content. And they, they mixed up sex work and trafficking, Ugh. basically. They like put them all in the same pot. And as a result of that, sex workers who had found some fairly safe ways to do their client work and find clients had to go back to a lot of people ended up back to soliciting on the street, which is a lot less safe for them. Right. So much less safe. And a lot of educators ended up in the same thing because there's a, basically it made these terrible penalties for anybody who happened to have any of that material come through. And there's no way for somebody to know if they're running like a, a, you know, a, a kind of classified ad space. And as a result, all of the sexuality-related work on the internet became a lot harder to do. And so all my sex educator friends and my sex worker friends all have been scrambling. That's when all of this like misspell the word stuff started because platforms started censoring those things at least to a level of plausible deniability. And then people started working around it. And that's, that's how we ended up where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just, I mean, it is frustrating, especially, I mean, like I obviously do not want to create any sort of harm. I am wildly against human trafficking. And I also know that there is less trauma or essay for people when they actually have proper sex education, accurate access to sex education, right? If you know the parts of your body, the names of the parts of your body to be able to communicate with a guardian or a medical provider, like to know your body and to be informed helps prevent some childhood abuse. I'm just going to throw that out there. It it might not be a hot topic, but it does. I mean, it truly does because a lot of the times, right? When Let's say, you know, I, I, I've heard this a story from someone uh, in my life. Uh, they, someone had, you know, they had a terrible experience with abuse as a kid and um, they only knew their body parts as like cutesy names, like cookie and whatever. So when they were telling their teacher and asking for help, their teacher didn't know what they were saying. Because they were like, well, it's a cookie, like, you know, but like to teach people the names of their body parts is so, oh God, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it. It's so important. And, but it's almost like, you know, the internet, the algorithms, it was just like a blanket, like any mention of the word sex was bad, Mm -hmm. which is also harmful, right? It's like the intention was to protect right traffic victims the intention is always the impact right right and and it's probably is that thing. a little bit and then but also it's it's harmful when you're trying to provide medically accurate information it's not protective it doesn't work like the people it's it's like the thing that went through congress a little bit ago where they were like we need to outlaw tiktok and half of the people at least in the conversation didn't even know what tiktok was like they had no idea it's like that but worse because we all yeah. have bodies we don't like opt out of having a body if we don't want to think about it or don't want to talk about it we have a body anyway it has those parts anyway we're going to have to interact with those parts in certain ways through our lives i can't tell you how mind blown i was the first time i went to i was actually not in a medical office i was at a workshop 
And someone said, you know, you can ask to put the speculum in yourself. Mm-hmm. I know, right? I was, Did you know I that? I was fully <laughs> an adult. I was in graduate school when I yeah. found out that I could put the speculum in for myself. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can hold your own labias open. You can hold your own, you know, glutes open if you're having an interrectal exam. You can do so much more, but the, like the speed at which medical providers are forced to move, there's no pausing for like being trauma-informed or ad- like empowering you. No, and I mean, I've had some really great experiences, especially in California. I had some really great experiences with well-trained practitioners who were mm-hmm. great about all that stuff, but it, it should not be the exception. Correct. And if you want an exception, you have to be like, hand me the speculum. Like you have to sit up on the table and be like, give me the speculum. I'll put it in myself. Because oh, otherwise I- like you can't mm-hmm. interrupt their flow. They're like, what, what? Give. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even know how much I could advocate for myself until I started doing pelvic exams as a clinician oh my myself. Gosh. So when I was a patient before, I would just like lay there and be like, I guess this is just what happens. This is terrible, mm-hmm. right? Like, and maybe sometimes I, I would find like the courage to be like, can you use the smallest speculum first? When really it actually didn't matter the size. It was just, I needed to be the one to right. put that in my body. And then, okay, I can't actually scrape my cervix from that position. You can do that part. But every part that I actually can do myself, I feel like I should be empowered to do so, taught to do so, or given the option at, at the minimum. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and when we learn that we have body sovereignty and we could do a whole other show about like <laughs> giving children access to their own decision-making around their bodies, but when we learn that body sovereignty at whatever age we learn it, then we start realizing all the places in our lives where A, we could have other kinds of sovereignty that we don't have and B, Mm -hmm. where we could grant that sovereignty to others. Yes. Absolutely. I love, yes. Go ahead. No, I just, one of my favorite things is working with my clients who've never had like a pain-free or not super traumatic pelvic exam and, and, the one that they have with me in the clinic for specifically my physical therapy clients to have a successful, pain-free, fully grounded pelvic exam for the first time in their lives. And a lot of the times these folks are in their later 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. Which you seems mean I didn't have to out of control. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I, I didn't have to just be like, just get it over with, just get it over with. No, actually, I'm listening to your words and I'm also listening to your body. So even though you're telling me, just get it over with, your body language is saying, hell no, we are not doing this today. And then because I run my own practice, I have the time, the space, (laughs) and the honor to be able to honor my client's words and their body. Can we talk about how capitalism is the opposite of honoring people's needs? (sighs) I mean, that's the thing, right? Like I have a friend who's a doctor who told me that in order for her to keep her private practice open, she has to be triple booked. Yes. And, and I choose instead to be a fee-for-service only or cash-based practice because I can't fix capitalism myself and I can't fix the medical system myself. And I truly don't believe I can provide trauma-informed care if I have to be somebody that triple books, double books, or bills insurance, and then insurance is a third party who's not medically trained in my specialty, decides halfway through my client's treatment. And is interfering in your care. Yeah. You know, that they're all, oh, they're done. And I'm like, no, we just started building that trust and that rapport. And they're finally like comfortable doing a pelvic exam or addressing their pelvic floor concerns or whatever it is they're in there for, even if it's like a neck pain or shoulder pain. Like I approach everything so similar and it's just like, let me educate. Let me, you know, we're going to use diagrams. I'm going to show you with my hand. I'm going to show you with my arms. I'm going to use models. And then I'm going to give you the choice 
for you to make an informed decision on whether or not you want to proceed with either the exam or the treatment. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just deferring to the next session, but I get it is a luxury because I choose to be free for service. And it also is really hard on my heart because I know that's not financially accessible for many people. And it's like holding, I guess, the tension of both where to provide the quality of care that I know every human that walks into my office deserves, I have to be fee for service. And it also does hurt my heart a little bit <laughs> to not yeah. being as financially accessible to, to everyone. And then for me <laughs> to do my own inner work on being like, okay, I can't solve the like U.S. health care system myself and I can't solve healthcare as a business. I can't solve capitalism myself. (laughs) So, and I can only do so much. And I also deserve to be well-paid, especially as a queer non-binary person who is an expert at what they do. And so there is a lot of like holding the different kind of tensions between things, but I mean, I love the work that I get to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the work is beautiful when it is, you know, it's the difference. They say you can have it fast, cheap, or good. Pick two. Yep. And for me, my solution has been to keep my rates high enough that I can afford to give away some work. I can't necessarily give it all away, but I try to hold... And, you know, coming out of the church, I just picked 10%. I was like, 10% seems like a good place to start at least. So I try to keep 10% of my labor for people mm-hmm. who can't access my, you know, who can't pay for my, mm-hmm. for my fees. But also, I make an effort. This is another place where social media comes in, right? I make an effort to put enough content out there for free that I can make once. I put, you know, I put out a book. I do all that stuff so that there's a range of access. There, there really is a range of access points to my work. Yes. And, yes. and I do for like local clients have a sliding scale. I am yeah. coming like developing some like community workshops and like the, the goal, right. Is that like part of my business can eventually fund right. more sliding scale and low cost offers so that more people have access. But it's also, I'm at the, beginning of my own entrepreneurship, right. you know, and figuring that out. Cause I also still have bills to pay and I have student loans and I have, you know, normal Everything. human things and needs. Being alive in capitalism costs money. It does. Can't pay Which, my bills with by, air. By the time you get to the end of braiding sweetgrass, you're going to be like, why? But you know, <laughs> I can't wait. I already kind of feel like that. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like, oh, this is for me what it did was it gave me a a larger context to put those feelings into. Like, oh, I'm not the only person who's been thinking about this or feeling about this or, you know, looking for and and to understand that 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 way of thinking that existence should not actually cost money is is actually like the older, more human more wisdom based way of doing things. And that this nonsense of it costs money to exist is very new and like a terrible branch idea that needs to be trimmed off the tree. (laughs) Uh, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, it's, it's been, it's been so interesting, especially the last year because I had left my quote unquote steady hospital job for my own mental health. And, you know, I was raised middle class. I always had everything that I needed and some of what I wanted. And, you know, I have a doctorate degree and so I was making decent money, but it still like never felt like enough to just even do basic things. And this year I've, I hate, like, I hate saying this, but I've had the luxury of being able, the, the luxury of a different perspective because I left my job. So I didn't have that steady income. And so I'm seeing things different that I never even saw. And like the idea of like how much it costs to literally be housed, Mm -hmm. to have health insurance, Mm -hmm. to pay for medical, like 
obviously like I always did those things, but I never really thought about it because I was just like, oh, paycheck, paycheck, like whatever. And now I'm like, oh, I was sometimes I wish people were had more perspective or varying perspective because I think that really can change the world. Like meeting new people, experiencing different things. I'm not saying everyone needs to experience hardship. Like I don't wish that on anybody, but I also I, I feel like there are some people that are so far removed mm-hmm. because of privilege that they forget how hard it is to live in this capitalist society. Absolutely. And it's gotten worse in the last 10 years. Terrible. Yeah. And in our lifetime. I mean, if you look at the comparison between incomes and costs of basic necessities since 1970, it's, yeah. Anyway, we have not done a good job of making the world a better place during my lifetime. And I feel a little guilty about that, but also I was a kid for half of that. Yeah. And, and it does, it, it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so my, my kind of big question, and maybe this is where we can end, is what are the things that we can do from, from knowing what you know? What are the things that we can do? We can't fix capitalism. Mm-mm. But what can we do right now? What can we do to make the world a better place more sustainable place, a more humane place right now in the middle of the dumpster fire that we're living in. Whoa. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the question that literally kept me up last night and the night before that and the night before that and has been keeping me up at least for the last 10 years. I, I truly believe one of the first steps is looking inward to see how we are perpetuating the systems and then looking inward to see how we can change and if we want to change. But because the problems are so, so big, if we start with like the bigness of the problems, I think it can get really overwhelming. And I think a really good start is figuring out, like, do you even believe in these systems? Do you benefit from the systems? How do you benefit if you do? What would an ideal world look like? How are you contributing? Can you see your own privilege in these positions? I think that's a great start because without the awareness of knowing how we're contributing or how we are, you know, victims to capitalism, we're just going to keep going through life and doing the same things over and over and over. (laughs) And we need change, folks. We need change. We do. We need change. So I'm going to ask you one follow-up question then, which is how can engagement with play inform that process for people? It's getting out of your own head, getting out of your own life, tapping into your body, feeling grounded and centered and embodied in your experiences. And, you know, play from like a science level, it's one of the things that can help complete our stress cycles. And so... Even if you just started tapping into play so that you can access your own brain space and creativity, I think is a great start. So do something, you know, when I was in, when I was doing my internship, which it feels like a million years ago now, my internship supervisor said, you need to go practice being bad at something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm bad at painting. I'm bad at art. I'm bad at this. So then you don't try. But you can be an artist and not be very good. And what is good? And by whose standards? Right. Or Or you you could just just be be an artist. You can just like mess around with paint. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to monetize your hobby. You don't have to put it in public. Nobody ever has to see your paintings unless you want. You can put your own pictures on the fridge and that can be the total extent of your gallery work. You don't even have to put them on the fridge. You can close it back up in the, in your notebook and (laughs) call it good, but it's. Or use them to start your next fire. Like you absolutely (laughs) have complete control over your work, but but the idea of he so and it was in fact painting. He literally sent me off with like fifteen bucks to go get some paints and some paper at the local art store because I was an intern. I didn't have any money, and and I 
got back to my apartment and I sat down and I started painting. That was 2005. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't really painted much for the last couple of years, but I have sold a couple of pieces because as it turns out, if you keep practicing being bad at something, you eventually at least develop your own bad style and then people yeah. are into it. But it remains a place where I don't try to do things. I like that. And I, I think it kind of goes back to where we started a little bit on not judging yourself. Yeah. Especially when you're playing, right? So that you, it, it like carries over into the rest of your being so that you accessing play and not judging how you play or how you do art or how you are creative and just being helps you see the world in a different way. Yeah. I feel like the keywords here are expectation and regret. And if I if I go into that, we're going to be talking for another three hours. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but but yeah, just being. Just just mm-hmm. be just in be. that thing. Be in the thing. Be in who you are. Be who you are. You are enough and you're valid just as you are in every moment of your life. Yeah. Yeah, and then people should go back and listen to the episode I recorded with Sarah Rhiannon about unshaming. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. I I, I need to go listen to that one too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I always love talking with you. And as always, I have to be like, okay, Lila, you can't just keep talking forever. (laughs) We have to... There are limits on this. So if you want to book a coaching or strategy session with Dr. Christina and or subscribe to their newsletter for their most up-to-date insights, musings, and offers, we will put the link in the show notes. There are links here also for one-to-one sessions, for subscriptions, and the website is christinahelu.com, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-H-E-L-O-U.com. So you should be able to find everything that you need there. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Take care. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.